0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a
1: month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello, I'm Mayhem.
2: Hello, I'm Chaos. And our, our happiness, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped. It loves us a circle with no end
1: was no, about, <laughs> about how this last night and he said happiness is energy. Um,
0: happiness is egg shaped. Happiness is egg shaped. And love's a circle with no end. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very extra special "Happinesses" podcast. With me, your host Bruce Atchison from Happiness is Egg Shaped, and today I am joined by one of the greatest coaches ever in this game, and someone who has made speeches that we have all. Recited the hairs in the back of her neck has stood up, and we've wished that we were the ones pulling on that shirt to go out into battle. I am not going to egg it any more than that because time is precious, and I am really looking forward to speaking to the one and the only Mr. Jim Telfer. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, Bruce. Nice to
2: hear you. Nice to speak to you.
0: It's great to have you here, and when I've told people that you're coming on to do this, everybody is excited by it. Do you still realise the impression you've got on the rugby public? It,
2: it seems to be when the lines are coming around that I get quoted more often than, you know, the other three years when nothing's, really, well, no lines tours are taking place. So it's amazing how, it's a modern technology, I suppose, and the, ve- and the fact that 1997 was such a successful tour in many ways just not the rugby but the social side and the supporters and so on and everything was being recorded i think that was the the key to the uh all things being heard and there was nothing edited in the in the in the tour when a lot of these quotations came out because you stuck, you stuck a mic mic in your face or your chest in the morning and you wore that until you went to bed at night so uh, it is pleasant to know these things are happening, but a lot's happened since. And of course, I'm one of these people that actually, I, I think to the future all the time. So I'm hoping that this summer, uh, the new history will be uh, made by the, the, 19, uh, the 2021 British Lions.
0: What What is it that makes the Lions then so special? We've all got a view, but... Your name, like you've said, every four years comes around and everybody wants to know what you've got to say about it. What is it that makes that such a special thing?
2: Well, I think that uh, historically it's been uh, a tour that took place far away, you know, and you had players from Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England. And apart from the Barbarians and maybe some other uh, representative teams, It was the only time that these British and uh, Irish people could get together and play as a group. And it was a challenge to try and get the best players available into a coordinated unit to play, originally against New Zealand, and Australia was tagged on and always South Africa. So historically, it's been uh, developed over the years uh, and still, The best players in the Northern Hemisphere, apart from France, they want to play together. They want to, they knock hell out of each other uh, during the season, either for clubs or for districts or for for countries in the Six Nations and so on in the European Cup matches. But it's the one time where uh, the, the players can develop as a team against traditionally the two strongest teams in the world, New Zealand and South Africa. And it's a shame really because when I was a player and went first in 1966, we were away for five months and you really get to know players and you get to know each other. We actually flew there, but it took us about five or six stops to get to Australia first, then New Zealand, 35 matches in Canada on the way back. It's rugby is very very important but it's the, the, the friendships you make and rugby is a very social game I mean you you the the rich can uh, mix with the poor the good can move uh, mix with the bad the excellent player can play with a big player in the second uh, second 15 and most recently what's happened is that thousands of supporters have gone to to uh, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia. And I think probably 1997 was the first time that mass numbers of red jerseys supporting the Lions were there at uh, Bloemfontein, at at Cape Town and so on, Ellis Park and so on. So these factors have uh, helped to make the, the, the sort of brand, if you like, the mystique of being a Lion and being successful line, the, the ultimate to be uh, when you start, when you play or when you coach the Lions team. So there's the historical point of view, there's the, uh, the fact that the players become very, very close. I mean, even if you're beaten 4-0 in the test season, as they used, they used to 4-tests, you, uh, you could still be very close to winning games or winning series, but it just didn't go right for you in the day. And, I mean, uh, so the players love to play at that elevated level. And then there's the supporters. I think they call them fans, but I call them supporters. And they were very integral. They were absolutely part of the team in 1997. And it's a it's a shame. It, uh, really, it's a disaster. There's nobody going to be able to see them live in places like uh, Pretoria or Cape Town or or Ellis Park, or, well, I think it's changed his name and a player playing probably in, in Sueto now. So uh, it's, I know a lot of people don't like it. It's been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until it's almost unrecognisable as far as this uh, time is concerned. And the, they'll, the players this time in going in, in 2021 will not be able to do the same things as the players in the past because... Although there was a tremendous social side, there was also an educational side for the the, the young people, the young boys and girls in, in South Africa, in the townships, uh, where the Lions, in particular in 2000, it would be 2000, and, uh, I think, 15 was the last time they went. Uh, the, the, uh, no, 2009. 2009, yeah. Uh, they, they went out to... Uh, you know, educate the youngsters and the players love doing that. If as a manager or as a coach, you sometimes have to ask for volunteers, and you, you get umpteen volunteers. Not just the players who are injured or can't do certain things. All players love to be, uh, at, you know, go out and help youngsters. And if, when I was a player in South Africa, sixty eight, and uh, New Zealand sixty six, I used to go to the assemblies. The morning assemblies, and it used to be seven o'clock in the morning. And because I was a teacher, and so sand, taking assemblies wasn't a big problem for me, because I was not used to taking them. But I was used to standing in front of people in a class. So that used to be a big, a big thing. You were uh, asked to go out and speak at the assembly and answer any questions the youngsters want. and there's about four or five hundred youngsters in front of you, it, it, for some. For some, it was a bit, uh, you know, daunting. But for others who what a chat like me, you could,
0: uh, you could get away with it, you know. But <laughs> that—that's a long way from from Melrose and from your upbringing to in 1966. Be on the other side of the world, yeah. on a rugby tour with the best players for the other nations. Mm-hmm. Were you were you aware of the the size of that at the time?
2: no i didn't i didn't realize that it was such a big phenomenon i mean i would played against the all blacks in in scotland for the south of scotland i would heard of lions tours before i'd heard of the 1959 uh tour and 1962 tour to south africa 59 went to new zealand and so i, I knew of them uh there were it was actually four years between 1962 and 66 and what i found was in New Zealand, as you know, you, you come from Gala Shields or Stow. Rugby at that time was a when even when you were a boy growing up, rugby was the main sport. I mean, when I went to the Scrimmage School, as you were Gala Academy, you either you got rugby or cross country running. You know that's what you got. Uh, so most people opted for rugby because they didn't want to get cold and wet going up the hills. So. When I went to New Zealand in 66, I knew that it was a religion uh, to be there. But the welcome you got and the the fact that every township you went, every farm or every small village you went, they were were rooting for the All Blacks, obviously, or the districts because we played, in New Zealand, we played 25 matches. We went up and down and round about all three or four times in Wellington, three or four times in Auckland, Christchurch and Dunedin and uh, all the other areas like Poverty Bay and uh, places like West Coast and so on. And everywhere you went, you you were greeted as, you know, somebody from, an, like an alien, somebody from a far land 12,000 miles away. And the, coming from the borders where everybody plays rugby, you know, it's a egalitarian sport. In New Zealand, it was even more so than the most, skinny looking, you know, un, uh, sort of athletic sort of chaps there. They were excellent rugby players because everybody played and uh, we had some tremendously difficult games against what you call country fifteens. So that was a, a an eye opener in a way, but I was used to the Borders being uh, a centre of rugby in Scotland at that time. And so uh, I just, educated myself with the fact that New Zealand was just a a stage further or two, three stages further and that uh, everybody, every young person, every young man wanted to be an all-black.
0: And was that where you fell in love with New Zealand? And did you know then you were going to be a coach or was that something in the far-off distance?
2: No, I think you'll realise this because you're a teacher yourself. I wasn't a PE teacher, but I, was, I, I taught chemistry, but I was expected to take a rugby team uh, in every school I taught in. Or, you know, uh, because of my background, I was expected to take a rugby team. And so, the, the, uh, you know, New Zealand in the early 60s weren't very, they weren't world beaters, but by the time 1966 came along, and 67 the following year they were they were the the best team in the world at that time i know they 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 dropped down a bit in 71 uh, but i was already coaching a school team Uh, and i used to say i was a teacher of a rugby team rather than a coach because there is a difference and so i was used to organizing pupils in a classroom in a chemistry classroom and you had to be very careful because of the potential to have accidents and so on. So it was used to controlling youngsters even at that time. Uh, and so it was a natural progression for me to become a coach. And there was no paid coaches in, 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 in Scotland. In fact, it was the word coach wasn't used at all. PE staff mainly took rugby teams. And occasionally people like me, science, math teachers, English teachers <coughs> took team as well and so that's how it started but the way the All Blacks played in 66 and especially the year after 1967 somebody's written a book recently a New Zealander saying that the 1967 tour to Britain uh, changed rugby forever and I agree with them Uh, that team I think it was unbeaten I don't think it went to Ireland uh, for foot and mouth or or something like that. that I'm not too sure, but anyway, they changed the way that rugby was played and the All Blacks, they, they started producing tremendous backs uh, after that tour and they've developed that since then. So, I, in 66, I played in three test matches against the All Blacks and their forward play was outstanding. The Colin Meads, Ken Gray, uh, Stan Meads, Kel Tremaine, Walker, Nathan. You know, you know their household names. And as a pack, they were absolutely superb. So I, I learned a lot on that tour. And as a teacher, you're always learning. You're always looking to learn something and then try, it. well, take a rugby team or a science class or something and make them better, get better results. And so it was natural for me to, uh, start developing the skills at club level, in particular at Melrose. So when I came back in 1966, uh, I'd already played for seven or eight years, but I started to coach the team uh, because nobody else coached the team. He used to uh, just run around the pitch and do a few passes and so on. So we organised things, and teachers often get complained get complained about because they're too, too good at organising. <laughs> Uh, and some of the players resented, you know, uh, hard training. But you, you. so that's where I started my thinking about coaching. And the other thing that struck me was New Zealand was very similar to the borders, very similar to Scotland, in that a lot of people had Scottish names at that time. Uh, they emigrated in the 50s and 60s. The countryside was very... Cr- similar uh local rivalries were similar to what we had in the borders uh they're not as not as close gala's four miles from in uh, from melrose Uh, i think in otago uh, a local derby can be 20 20 miles apart you know and well that's hoik from here but yeah Kelso's even closer jed and so on so the it was the local rivalry the. The fact of Scots people there, but the type of person they produced was very similar to the type of person who played rugby in the borders and generally speaking in Scotland, because they are not all that different apart from a, a few slightly slickers and so on, you know. Uh, so the they do quite well at rugby as well, I must admit. But uh, so that's I I there's no doubt I copied the All Blacks. I copied the way they played rugby in, in New Zealand. I've been blamed for it. I've said, you know, that I've been told that you, you, you shouldn't try to copy, you have to produce your own way of playing. And I did that in the mid 70s. I produced a player a, a paper that uh, for the future of Scottish rugby, and it was all about rucking and so on and development like that. And so uh, I, I, I know that you have to produce individual players to, to, to play the way they can play. But the format, the the, the uh, you know the blueprint was really how the All Blacks played, and you see nowadays everybody else tries to copy the All Blacks. It's it's <laughs> amazing they win World Cups. They've won three already. England's only won once, you know. South Africa won three. I was never going to uh, copy or or I take ideas from South Africa but because of the terrain in South Africa. It's a it's like a continent. You Know it's like Europe almost as big as that, and you can be in the high belt at five, 500,000 feet, and then one day and see the next day, and it was completely different. So, I was never going to copy the way the, the Springboks played, but I was going to copy and try to emulate how the All Blacks played, and how the country districts, the Southlands and the Otago's, and, the, and you know, the, the South Island teams in particular. Now the crusaders you know who are dominant and so that's where i got my motivation from but i think i was always designed to be a coach once i stopped playing because uh organizing people and organizing things kind of came naturally to me you know i I like organizing people i Uh, I was gonna say you like it
0: you like it. You enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Natural, and you enjoy it. That that tour, that first one you went on, you you yourself played over twenty games for the Lions on that yeah. tour. Now, you could go on three tours, mm-hmm. and the whole squad wouldn't play twenty games. Yeah. And the time is is getting squeezed even more. And you've said that the rugby is obviously important. But so is the learning. So is the getting to know people. What what could be done to help that in future tours to give people time?
2: I really don't have an answer that for that because it seems to me that money is it the 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 crux of everything nowadays. And the very fact we're having a tour at all with no spectators and uh, being shortened to about six or seven weeks proves that there's so many uh, contributing factors against that kind of tour that it's almost impossible to see how you could develop a strategy uh, f- for making the lines longer. What you're saying is you would uh, we really want to see the Lions tours at least to 10 weeks, you know? Because I think uh, in the 97 Lions tour, there was, there was some time that, where you could go out and talk to youngsters and go to social events and meet your supporters and so on, but also meet South Africans. Now, uh, irrespective of the fact that there's nobody gonna be there, the, the the everything's crammed into space. I mean, even in 97 when we went, Martin Johnson didn't play for the first two games. He played in the third game because he'd played a Twickenham, the Saturday before we left, you know, even twenty-five years ago, there was uh, great pressures on the rugby calendar. So I don't have a panacea of of uh, what's going to happen in future, but I would like to see, and it won't happen, I know. Uh, at least ten weeks and a little bit of preparation, a week's preparation, and uh, you know, the the players have a chance to develop, as players, I mean when again a heart back to 97, but the, I'll just give you an example, in 1997 it was a wee bit longer and we had seven or eight matches before the first test and the test team that took the, the park at Cape Town in the first test would not have been the test team that would have been chosen beforehand, especially in the forwards and there was injuries of course, uh, Scott Cornell was injured. Uh, he was, and Doddy, of course, got injured, and he would have been challenged. So was Scott Quinell, and these things happen. But the we were able to uh, produce a pack that could to contain the, the, the springbok, but it wasn't the same pack that most of the scribes would have chosen before we went, because most of the scribes are English, and so they they produce, they picked their own teams. But uh, I picked my own team, and, and so that was one of the, the things we were able to do, I think. Warren Gatlin and, he, and Gregor and so on will be you'll have to think of a test team after a couple of weeks, a couple of games simply because they just don't have the time to mould them together but I think also they have great advantages in that the players although they don't play against each other or they don't play with each other they've played against each other and there's so much statistic work and and, and, and you know that sort of stuff now work on the, on the, on the Computer that the, they'll know the team they want, probably. And uh, the, the players are, could I say, better than they were in 97? You know, they're, they're, they're used to playing in in top matches a lot more than they were then uh, internationals, European Cups, premierships, and so on. And so the players will slot into the way that the coach wants to play. But he has to decide, or they have to decide, what style he have to do. Uh, to beat the, the Springbok. I mean, Ian McGeechan was chosen in 1996. You probably know this. He went to he went to South Africa in 1996, a year before, and he stayed with the Springboks for for three weeks. The for three weeks and learned how Blacks were trying to beat the Springboks. And he got good ideas. He if you ever speak to him, he'll give you. It was it was open. And he was welcome into the All Black camp, and he he produced a strategy to at least compete with the Spring box. Uh, and then if you'd quality players, he could actually beat them. So uh, I don't think Warren has had that opportunity. And of course, with COVID, he hasn't been able to uh, speak to many players in this country either. But he has the advantage that, if he wants, there are players who played in the 2017 quite successful tour of, of New Zealand. It wasn't a complete success because they drew the series, but it was as close as you can get. And so he has that backbone of experience there. Uh, and so, but very quickly, Gregor and, and uh, the rest of the coaches and, and Warren will have to decide, this is the route we go down. And of course, you can never uh, work out who, what, what injuries are going to happen. And I know that players at the moment are apprehensive if they're playing. I think there's more chance of being injured on the tour there
0: is before you go yeah it's it's a big challenge there's a couple of things in there one about 97 but you you spoke about the time and of, and you played 20 odd games and you'll have played against little provinces and probably regional select teams that were a one off just to play the lions by shortening the tour you're not just taking away from the Lions, but you're taking away the chance of that guy in the countryside of South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, mm-hmm. to play in a game that will probably be the pinnacle of that player's career. That's quite a sad thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, when I, when I went in 66, there were 35 matches, and there were 25 in, in, in New Zealand, eight in Australia and two in Canada had been reduced to 20 matches in 1968, but that was, you went to play a, <laughs> places that you, in South Africa that you only read about in books, you know, uh, uh, real hillbilly towns, uh, where they didn't speak English at all, uh, the the spectators were, and uh, uh, they spoke Afrikaans, and so that is absolutely true. I mean, some of these country teams or combination of of Small districts; they were just as tough to play against as the test team. Not in the same way, but they were out to get you. You know, it was a, it was a, you know, a, a badge of honour if they if the boat beat the lions. And and the lions have been beaten in uh, in in some matches in South Africa. They shouldn't not have been beaten. In. And certainly in New Zealand, you know, down in Southland. the first game in sixty six, we come from Australia unbeaten. We won seven matches and drew one, one, two tests, easy. Went down to Southland, Invercargill, Portland West. And we were beaten first game. Uh, we were then beaten the next Saturday again. And so it was a rude awakening. But they... they at that time, the games were dirtier in some of these uh, provincial games, if you like. Uh, the test teams were clean. The test matches were clean, reasonably clean if you could, you know, Colin Meads had his, his sort of reputation, but he was in the whole, in the whole, very game player, and so the, 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 that will not happen in the future at all the, 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 the bloke in Uppington or, or somewhere like that, Street, or somewhere like that would be playing for Eastern Transvaal or whatever, like Mumpumalanga or uh, the, I mean, Doddy was in, in, injured in Mumpumalanga it takes a while to, record, to be able to pronounce it, let alone be there. But that was Eastern Transvaal, Western Transvaal, Northern Transvaal, is of course the Bulls now. But these places, uh, not just the players enjoyed it, but the, the spectators, the, the the supporters loved it. The, the fact that the, the best players in the Northern Hemisphere on Britain and uh, Ireland were there Visiting their town, you know, and they're there to show you, show off the town, Visit like Kimberley and so on, lovely places, uh, and, and lovely people when you're there. But they were, they were, they were hell bent and beating you, you know, both in New Zealand, Australia, not so much at that time, and certainly in South Africa because they, they, they look on the 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 lines as almost the World Cup, you know. I know yeah,
0: it, it was the biggest show at the time, yeah. wasn't it? Because there wasn't a World Cup so the Lions was it for them
2: Oh yeah, I mean, that was when they proved to be the unofficial world champions, if you like Although, I think still the All Blacks and the Springboks still look in their own game as probably, apart from the World Cup the pinnacle of their careers uh, the, playing against the All Blacks for the Springboks and vice versa
0: Okay The the bit about, or, or one of your one of your speeches in South Africa. Now you've probably made thousands of speeches before various games as a captain, as a player, as a coach, but you you make a comment about the Brit abroad. You look for an English pub, a pint of Guinness, mm. and a British paper. Mm. So that's being lost, I think, isn't it? And on these tours that are so short and. Just against te- some of those towns you mentioned and places you mentioned, that's where you get the culture of the place.
2: Oh yes, uh, that was when I said that. You, you look at an Irish pub and a fish and chip shop, and a, you know a, a paper, because you want to be British when you you want to not be uh, in a foreign country. It's like a holiday maker, as I said, and that's one thing the Lions have to uh, adapt to the players. They they can't be they they can't allow themselves to get homesick. You know, I've been on tours, especially nineteen ninety six, where players players were homesick and they couldn't play because they, they weren't they weren't up to it. I don't need to mention who they were, but they they, they were homesick, and so uh, always thinking of home. It's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But you you. Uh, As Ian McGeehan once described it, it's a 10-week phenomenon where a group of players and a group of people, 50-odd it was worth with us in '97, come together and for those next 10 weeks, they work to to be successful because that group of players and group of people will never, ever again be the same. And, And so you have to make sure that you forget all about where you come from. Uh, you can I talk I take it, know text and all that sort of stuff but you 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 have to forget that and that's what I find the Scots are very good at that they're very good <laughs> I don't think they like Scotland some of them but they, they, they love being in the environment I mean I used to think when I played uh, the Ireland and Scots always felt they were they were really they shouldn't be there they were really a, uh, you know, couldn't believe they were there, they were Welsh and English, they, they, they had the right to be there, you know? And so, I'm not saying that's always the case, but they were, at that time, they were mainly Welsh and English in the teams. And so, and, but everybody, everybody who starts off a Lions tour, the players, the management, are as one. They, they, there's nothing coming between them at all. And they're all aiming for the same thing, and that's success at the test level. The, the provincial games and, and the midweek games, if you call them that, they're important to win, but they're not the, the most important. You're only remembered for what you do in the test matches. And so the players, they, they have to forget where they come from and uh, just uh, take the culture completely. And often in the past, it was the press who got to the players. Why are you no picked for the test team? Do you think he should have been in the best team? And, uh, you know, because the press, the first thing they do is when they pick a team, they look at the players not in the team and they they try to get opinions of them. And you've noticed that in some of the tours, like 2001, for example, where the players started to pitch at each other. uh, But in the tours I've been on, as a player and as a coach, the the players are very good. Uh, I mean, I went to New Zealand in 83 as the as the only coach, we're beaten four tests to nil, but we were close in two of them. But the player, I felt, I found the players excellent. All Irish, Welsh, English, and and, and Scots, they all mucked in together. We we're just not good enough, you know, at that time. Uh, and th- th- I mean, they've had a lot of success alliance since then. I mean, they, they should have won in 19, in 2009. Uh, and, uh, two thousand and nine, and Ian McEveen at to South Africa they could have won in 2017. So, um, and they should have won in 2001 because I reckon that uh, the team that went in 2001
0: to Australia was a better team than ninety seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the process to selection then, does does Ian McGeekin get the phone call first to say, we'd like you to lead the Lions, and then he phones you to say, Jim, I want you to come with me? Or how does that process work?
2: Well, I would think uh, for the 97, 97 tour, Fran Cotton was appointed as manager. And at that time, uh, a player, somebody like Fran Cotton was chosen because of his stature in rugby. He made a double line, in, I think it was 74, 77. He played in the team that Willie John's team had been unbeaten in South Africa. He was a, a, a victorious line in South Africa. So, the Lions Committee, there is a committee, I think it's, uh, each country is represented. And so they chose Frank Cotton, and it was up to him to choose his management. And the first person he chose was Ian McGeechan, uh, as I said before, a year a year before the, the tour. Uh, and then about, when Ian came back from South Africa, he started making up his own uh, coaches I mean, he, he didn't choose the press man or he didn't choose the necessarily the the secretary or something like that to the, to the manager. And Ian asked me to be the, the coach, the forward coach, uh, I think I was classed as assistant coach, assistant coach. Uh, and so uh, that's how it worked. And then he, he worked out with me and with Fran, but mainly himself, other coaches, fitness the director, fitness coaches and so on until you get your management and so we had a, a coaching team about seven or eight and that so that's how it was done whereas in the past if I give you an example of 1983 when I was asked to be coach I went down to London for an interview and I think there was four other people or three other people interviewed probably the coaches of each of the other countries and I was asked to coach the team but I wasn't asked if I wanted any other coaches. That was the there was only one coach, uh, and uh, when when the selection took place of the players, I was the first coach from of the Lions who had ever been in the selection committee, of the, of the,
0: and there was four
2: again four representatives four main selectors from each country, and we used to meet regularly and talk about the, the players, but. Uh, I was the only coach and I was the first selector and coach for the Lions. there have been coaches before, there were coaches when I went in 66, uh, John Robbins and um, the, uh, uh, Dawson was the coach in, in, forget his first name now, Ronnie Dawson was the first co- coach in, in 68, but he had been, co- uh, been captain of the Lions in 1959. He was an excellent, excellent coach, but, uh, but I was the first coach to be a selector. Uh, and you're always asked to write a report when you finish when you come back and I, I I wrote a report, a report, I spent a lot of time in it, uh, because we were just not equipped to do it the, the structure of rugby in Britain at that time and Ireland was just not conducive to producing players of quality to be all Blacks. so I put that down, but also said you have to have a bigger team of coaches I never was asked to uh, go and talk to my, my uh, Report. I don't suppose anybody ever read, read it at all. But I think I think Willie John said that as well. Uh, Willie John was the, the manager. He was an excellent manager, uh, and so we really a fairly strong management team, but not many. Uh, so that's how it works now. I mean, Warren Gatlin will have a manager. I don't know who it is, but some of the managers like Andy Irvin and Gerald Davies uh, and uh, Spencer John Spencer. They're sort of um, lions, you know, royalty. You know, all of them have played for the lions, uh, so that, uh, their 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 wisdom is valuable because they've done it. Uh, but it, I mean, Warren will be in charge. There's no doubt about that. And the team he puts out, he'll have uh, spoken to all the coaches and probably the manager. But he, it's his team, and the way he plays will be determined by. The players he's got and also with his own ideas and he's he's been very successful when you think of the success he's had with with whales and so and the lions because he first coached the lions in 2009 so he's been there 2013 17 almost as many times
0: as ian <laughs> so when you sit down then to map out a team yeah and when you played, you probably had to back up on a Tuesday and a Saturday and then possibly got a rest on the Tuesday to be back on the Saturday. Now, when you're mapping it out, you probably have to have your test team before you get on the plane. But when you left in 97, you're right. People probably didn't pick Wally and, and Tom Smith as your props or probably didn't give Jeremy Davidson a chance. or So... When you got on the plane, were you that open? Let's just see how this goes and we'll get to the tests.
2: I think the the, the I'm I'm trying to remember exactly, and Ian would know more, probably Fran. We, we we told every player honestly that everybody was up for selection for the test team, you know. And that was an honest assessment that the, whatever happened in the first four or five games. Everyone would be given a chance to play uh, to, the, to the full and to be given a chance to get into the test team. And so, uh, because of the shortness of the time now, it's probably, you can't have that luxury. We did have that luxury. And uh, we did change the team every time. I mean, I can remember exactly who we played right from the time when we played. Uh, in Eastern Province at uh, Port Elizabeth to, down to uh, East London, then to the Cape Town, then up to the, the High Velt and so on. And we had injuries on the way because Doddy was injured in the fourth game. And I think about the same time Scott Quinnell was injured. And so you get knocked back because of that. And uh, it, so everybody was given a chance to show what they could do. And then as you get closer, you try, especially the, the Saturday before the test, and it was against Natal, uh, we, we had decided as, as much as we could what the test team would be. And we won by 42 points, I think, that day. They played brilliantly at Natal. Uh, I think they were probably the best team, uh, the province at the time. And so, uh, but the, every, every player was given a chance. And I don't think anybody, if you ask them now, uh, would say, well, we we weren't given a chance. We were just there for backup. And so that didn't happen. Uh, And uh, I had an open mind, an open mind. But once I've made up my mind, once I've made a decision, I go with it because I have found in coaching, uh, selection is the key. If you're going to win team uh, matches, and championships and so on, you have to get the selection right. You can't muck about and say, oh.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At Nile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight-loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss
2: I'll do this and I'll do that. You have to get, you make a decision. It was decided that Tom Smith would be our loose-head prop, even though Jason Leonard was there. Um, Wally, as you said, uh, Paul Wallace was chosen. And Paul Wallace wasn't in the original 30 players, 35 players when we went, because Peter Closey was chosen as a tight head. Uh, I think with Jason Leonard and I think uh, Roundtree, Graham Roundtree was the other who said uh, Peter Closey failed the fitness test on the first day in London, and Paul Wallace was brought in. So you can see that he overtook some people to get there. And so uh, but once you, you've decided on the style of play, and Ian was was excellent, at what Ian did, he wanted players who played slightly differently. You don't beat the, the Springboks by beating them up. You don't beat the Springboks by running straight at them. You know, uh, you have to take them on. You have to confront them. But you have to think of ways of outflanking them, or, as they say in rugby, hitting weak shoulders using feet and so on. Uh, and so we chose players who could do that. And in the forwards in particular, when you look at the front row, Tom, uh, Keith Wood and, and, and Paul, excellent rugby players, excellent rugby players, Martin Johnson, Jeremy Davison, athletic and so on. Uh, you know, in the back row, Tim Rodberg and so on. Were, uh, what do you call them? Uh, who's the other one? Delalio. Oh, and Lawrence and, and, and of course uh, 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 Sarish and Richard Hill, you know, and Neil Bach. Delalio, I mean, it's a bad player who could play anywhere in the back row. So, you we pre- I, I'm maybe different from modern coaches, but I don't look at the scummaging ability as the most important thing for a prop or a front row. Now, I know that you can't beat the, the Springboks unless you can compete with them in the scrums. I'm not that stupid or naive. And I've been in South Africa a few times to play, as a player and as a coach. So that I, I knew that you had to be able to compete with them in the scrums. But scrums are only part of the game. And if you can if you can match them in the scrums in South Africa, then you're part of the way along the way to beating them because they have this psyche about scrums that they're superior to everybody but we could outplay them elsewhere and uh, that's what happened I mean we were under the cosh especially in the, in the second test I mean we were very lucky to win but the first test was uh, and as Ian used to say if we're in the game with 10 minutes to go we'll win because we 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 had tremendous ability outside but we would also tremendous ability in forwards and if you look at Tom Smith and, and, and Keith Wood and Paul Wallace, I would think they'd be close to be record holder in their own position in their countries, Lawrence and, and, and Martin Johnson and so on. They'd be seeing Richard Hill, they'd be picked in most Lions teams. So that uh, we had some excellent players, but there were rugby players first and specialists second. And uh, I know I'll be, uh, especially with English scribes, they'll say, oh no, you have to have scommages like uh, in England. With- uh, you know they were beaten in the world cup by the scrum. But uh, uh, unfortunately the scrum South Africa had six six who were world beaters you uh, know two sets of front row uh, and England just couldn't compete with them. But we managed to compete with Garvey and Osterant and I think Dalton was the hooker the other the hooker. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. When when Alan Tate scored, can you remember who threw him the pass? It in the telly often enough. Uh, so when you, you gave one of your speeches about this is not Twickenham, this is not Murrayfield, you have, to, you have to learn, this is how we're doing it. And I spoke to Alan Tate last week and it was Tim Rodber that threw him the pass. Oh, oh yeah. And I asked Alan Tate, would Tim Rodber have thrown that pass if he was wearing an England shirt? What, what, what do you think? Do you think Tim Rodbury would have thrown that pass playing for England?
2: I have to say yes, but I don't know. Uh, I think certainly the way the Lions played, we played a wide game. And that was typical of what Ian had talked about in the team talk for the first test. It was easy when with about 20 minutes to go. Dawson scored a try, with a lovely break. And then, as you say, we outflanked them going left. Uh, from right to left Uh, and Alan was in the wing of scores and scored and Tim Roper gave him the pass I would would have liked to think that he would have done it Uh, would have done that, I'll give you a wee story though Uh, when Martin Johnson and I hope he he can you know, accept this when Martin Johnson was picked for the Lions in the third game, we played at Cape Town we played some great rugby, but our scrum was mangled. So that's why we had some. Uh, you probably remember we had a tremendous scrummaging session two or three days later. We were very, very badly beaten in the scrums. And we scored some beautiful tries. Guy and Evans, I remember, Rob Howley scored beautiful tries. And we won by 40 points, but we didn't play well. And then at the press conference later, now you have to have your history of where. Knowledge of where Martin comes from, Leicester, you know. And he he was asked the question, I'm paraphrasing now, what do you think of the way the lions are, are playing and moving the ball around, Martin? He says, This is the only way to play rugby, you know? And he so he was converted completely. Uh, and so a lot of players were converted, even Scotsmen, and how to play the game. But I remember that. So if Tim Broadburg, I would like to think he was a good enough player to pass if he played for England, but he certainly did that uh, on that day. And uh, I mean, uh, teams within teams. He, he used to talk about he, groups of five teams within teams. You react to the situation as it comes on you. You didn't. You need to have a forward or a back. You're just rugby players. Once the ball was at the scrum or at the out and if you watch the Lions matches and on that tour that was justified that's the way we played you know it was uh, I mean we were badly beaten by in the end 35 I think by Northern Transvaal. Oh, that was a turning point but uh, we scored good tries in that game but didn't play well Greg I think got a kick charge down and
0: Martin Johnson says that after that game that was when you took over And he said that was when things got better. Can you, can you, was that your most important moment on the tour? After Cape Town. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, we moved up to Pretoria and we were going to play the three top sides before the test matches Gentan Lions, which is uh, Transvaal, Northern Transvaal, which is the Bulls. And the tall sharks, which is obviously the tall, and we had the other games in, the, you know, with other games, uh, before the test match with the emerging swing box, I think. But after, after Cape Town, we were, we were just playing at the game, if you like, three games in. I realised there has to be something done about the forward play, and that's when I made the thing of the speech about the fish and chip shop at Bounty Guinness and, uh, you know, the rest of the things. Forget that. Forget your at Murrayfield. Forget your home comforts. That was on the Monday morning before we were going to Vitbank on the Wednesday to play Mpumalanga. That was when I really started to get tough on the players. But, Bruce, I can tell you that all the forwards, and, and, and I take my hat off to the, especially the English players who were very experienced. Uh, I have great respect for them, Jason and and, uh, uh, Lawrence and and Martin, in particular Richard Hill and and, uh, Neil Barr. Uh, There was talk in England that they wouldn't accept what I said, but I was very honest with them. Before that, but even after that, that if we decided to do something, we did it together, and nobody bitched about this or that, they didn't say it was too tough, too hard, or so on. They accepted that I would have to, you know, I was the boss and they were the the pupils, if you like. They were the workmen, and they accepted that because I was a bit worried when I went to coach the line I hadn't coached for four years. I worked at the union, at the Scottish Rugby Union at that time, so I hadn't actively coached since I'd left Melrose in nineteen ninety four. This was three years later, so there was. I had a worry that I wouldn't be up to you know the modern game of professionalise and so on, and but they they accepted what you might call old fashioned rules, you know, and when you think of it, Martin Johnson he he is he'd already been uh, you know an experienced player before that he worked at Leicester and worked hard these books. And then you're talking about Lawrence Delalio taking sessions at Wasp and so it was a. I mean they were prepared to work hard because they'd worked hard before it wasn't as if i was introducing something new uh, and it was the same for keith wood who's a very experienced player and played for harlequin so uh, we agreed that i was the, the boss and they would do whatever i asked them to do and that's what happened so
0: how how tough was it to be away, Jim Telfer, Melrose man, everybody knows your, your love of the place. And to go through what you did with Doddy on that tour. I mean, he, was, he wasn't just a player that you'd got to know on that tour. He was somebody you'd seen since he was a daft wee laddie and now he was a daft big laddie. How, how did that impact you?
2: Yeah, well, you have to steel yourself for these things happening. When you're abroad i mean i i'd had the experience of i mean Derry white once was injured in australia and his leg was going backwards and forwards because the ligaments were completely broken in 1982 so i had to accept that rugby players get injured and they have to be they're disappointed of course they are and it's it's often just as bad playing for your club or your district or your country in Donnie's case, uh, as you say, I had known him since he was about 18, you know, when he came to Melrose uh, as a youngster from Stuart's Melville, uh, although he lives in the borders, as you probably know. And so that uh, he'd been part of the, the teams that I'd worked with in the early 90s, all the way through from 1991 19, and so on, and 93-4 and so on. And so, he was probably well, his only Melrose player there. It was a blow when I came in to speak to him. I came down immediately to the dressing room. And we looked at each other, and I don't know what the will say he said, we knew this tour was finished. You know, you're there for 10 weeks or even less, seven weeks. It's not so bad if you'd if been there for four and a half months, like 1996. <laughs> uh, where you could be injured and then sparing it. But the kind of injury he got was going to be a long-term injury. And so, I thought it was kind of special in that sense. But I have come to learn, that, or did come to learn, that these things happen and you have to make the most of it at the time. So there was no crying or wailing or anything like that. It just, as a sports person, especially in a physical sport like rugby, you're you're fitting fit hundred percent one minute, and you could be out with an ACL the next minute. So it was that kind of injury, and there was no there was no thought that he could stay and, and get better. And that was it. I knew he was desperately disappointed, and I tried to uh, you know speak to him and so on. And he was so much part of the the side outside the rugby, you know. He's seen the video where he's the big stupid laddie all the time, you know. And um, and he was the life and soul of the party. He was a he was a as good a line, uh, uh, you know, supporter if you like, a good a good line player as you'll get because of what he did off the field or when he did on the field playing with with the team, and so i mean if you if could choose anybody who could be a caricature of what a line should be it could be doddy weir because he's he gets on with everybody he's prepared to take the the, the smooth with the, the rough and obviously it's rough at the moment and so uh he he was he was a great loss and and it was a great loss to the team because uh, i mean we got a replacement the redmond came a uh, good player, but completely different uh from, from Doddy. And Doddy would have competed for Alliance Place because you know Doddy's a huge man. He's an athlete kind of player. We wanted him in South Africa. That's why he's chosen in the first place. Because I, I mean I haven't mentioned it, but we actually did choose. We did choose players who could play the kind of game that Ian wanted to play. You know, and that's you you went on about Tim Rodburn. But uh you know, all the players were chosen with with that in mind. Uh you know, even Scott Gibbs. I mean, Scott Gibbs was a tower of strength. He wasn't your sidestepping, you know, quick quick guy. But he was fearsome when he had the ball in his hand. He was even more fearsome when he didn't have the
0: ball in his hand. He, he was quick and sidestepping at Wembley yeah.
2: in 1999. Yeah. Yeah, he did, he did. Aye, that's right. Scored Aye, <laughs> he was... But he, he, if he saw an opponent, he quite liked running over the top of him, you know?
0: So... Talking about selection, you pick Alan Tate on the wing and Neil Jenkins at 15. Gregor gets to run at 10. Rob Howley was probably your test scrum half and gets right. injured. You pick a front row that probably wouldn't have been picked six weeks earlier, but you, you got it right. You got the selection right. What we We only get to see clips on the video. So we only get to see the two-minute selection committee meeting, yeah. and there's there's obviously lots. And I think Geach at one point is talking about what type of player, and I think you talk about Neil Back was obviously a player you admire, and the thing that was always held against him was his size. And what what went into the? Obviously, there was the style of play, and there was players who were going to be disappointed. What, what's the magic stardust that you and Geach had with selection? I mean, Neil Jenkins at 15, he must have been thinking, the two of you were off your rockers.
2: Well, Neil Jenkins at that time was the best goal kicker in the world. Uh, and in the second test, he kept us in the game. Kicked goals all the way through until we got a drop goal. And so uh, we knew that we had to have a very good goal kicker. We, we decided that we would go with Gregor at 10 because of his attacking flair. Now, Gene, Neil Jenkins was an excellent player. I mean, I've seen him playing up here uh, in Scotland for Pontypree, you know, before I think he went to Cardiff. And he was a really tremendous standoff, but he lost a bit of pace and so on. And Paul Grayson was the other standoff that went, but he was injured quite quickly. Mike Cart came in from an England tour. And so it was decided that uh, they would have to have a goal kicker. So and a very safe man under uh, the, the, the high ball and so on, and, and and also a very good rugby player. You know, he wasn't a fullback, but he could he could be second 5 5-8 if you want him to be. A, you know, if Gregor was, uh, we could play two two standoffs because he was very. It was obviously came to him that way, and that's how it was done. So that's why we played because. Who chose Neil because mainly of his goal kicking, but also his all round ability. Uh and he's a bloody good guy, Neil. You know, he'll give us all. He'll give us all for the team and so on. And that goes for everybody, of course. So that's why he was chosen. I mean, you're right, you're, you said the back division of this is a bit of all sorts, but the, that's not true. You know, we had Gian Evans in one wing, Jeremy, Jeremy gusco Scott Gibbs, and Alan Tate. You know, that's not a bad 3 line. You know, when you think of it, because Alan Tate is probably better as a winger than he is as an outside centre, because he has that rugby league streak about him. You know, he could go for the line. And when you've got, um, well, Rob Howley, but, uh, you know, Dawson, uh, I forget
0: his first name now. Matt Dawson. Matt Dawson
2: came in. It was excellent. But Rob Howley would probably have been the... the Matt Dawson wouldn't say that, but I think... That, uh, You know, uh, Rob Howley would have been in the scrum half. And that's what happens. That's what happens. When I went on the tour in 83, uh, Roy went in a scrum half. And there was two scrum half. The other one was Terry Holmes. And Terry Holmes was a superb player. So was Roy, but Roy was behind Terry Holmes. There's no doubt about that. Terry Holmes got injured early in the tour and went home. Nigel Melville came out. Excellent scrum half. He was injured in the first game and went home. So you have to overcome these things. You have to just take the, the, the punch in the gut for these sort of things. And When Rob Howley, I mean Rob Howley was injured in Natal the, the week before and he hurt his shoulder. It was, it was really sad. It was just as sad as seeing Doddy because he knew his, his tour was over. He got a tour in 2001, but he knew his tour was over. And it's a great thing to be in a Lions when you when you're fit and well. It's not so nice when you're not well. You know.
0: how, how important were the rugby league boys? Oh, very important.
2: Very important. Uh, the five of them, you know. Uh, I know that Ian said this publicly he thought the best line on the tour was Alan Bateman. And Alan never got into team, but he was an excellent player, Alan Bateman. And uh, Scott Cannell had to go home. Uh, John Bentley was a, a character, Alan Tate and, and Scott Gibbs. Or oh, they, they, they brought professionalism to them, to the thing. But they also were, they were characters in their own right, you know. But uh, they'd all made it in a different game, you know, rugby league. But they had all been internationals beforehand in rugby union as well. They weren't new to rugby union. They were coming back to rugby union. And so the, the experience of fitness and, and, and discipline and so on was uh, evident with the Especially uh, in weight training and things like that, they brought that professionalism uh, to the to the regime. And you he had a feeling when you were sitting speaking to the likes of Scott Gibbs, you've done things you know that a lot of other players haven't done because they've, they've stayed in rugby union or whatever. And the same with uh, the same with uh, uh, you know, like Scott Bunnell. You know, he'd chosen to go rugby league and he'd chosen to come back. Unfortunately didn't stay in the tour. They played in two thousand and one as well. So they made a they weren't the icing on the cake. They were they were just a sort of glue that pulled everybody together and uh, made sure we, we did things right, you know, as far as preparing for the games.
0: <clears throat> I, I would I would love to have Senior as a chemistry teacher, uh, having been a deputy head teacher at Hoyke High School, I was rooting through a drawer once and I found a headed bit of paper with your name on it as, as head teacher. Uh-huh. How much of that schoolmaster did you have to take into being a Lions coach? It's just me.
2: It's just me. I am a schoolmaster or was a schoolmaster. And it's just my nature. Uh, I like to be bossy. I like to give orders. Uh, I don't give many orders in my house, I must admit. Uh, I I know my match there. But uh, I've always been, you know, in charge. I was captain when I was at school and so on. Uh, So it just comes natural to me. And it's natural to me to get youngsters in front of me in a chemistry class uh, and just, you know, uh, communicate with them and so on. It, it, some, uh, I mean, I like communicating with people. I, 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 when I was at Hoyk High School, I enjoyed being headmaster at Hoyk High School. I used to take a science class for each week, you know, six periods, because I wanted to keep in touch with what the, the, the teachers were doing. And I made sure that nobody interfered with with my class, there was nobody who up and say, by the way, this is a right red right building bairn in with us, or fight in the toilets or something. Somebody else can deal with that at that moment. And so to be fair the pupils, they had to make sure I had to make sure I was there for them. The six period. So it was kind of like uh, half an afternoon a week or something like that. But I was determined to keep myself in touch. Because you're like yourself, Teaching is a do a game you do in a in a classroom, you know. I mean, I became an assistant and a, a deputy and a and a head, but that's not really what you start off in teaching. You know, you start off as a teacher because you love passing on information to other people, and uh, I've always had the sort of uh, general sort of principle that. My class has to pass, you know. If I if they don't pass, it's my failure to get them passed. They have to, you know, it's up to me to make them even better than they think they are themselves. Because some pupils, as you know, don't work too hard. So <laughs> it was a it's a personal crusade every class I took. It's the same with every rugby team I think. Some uh, people yeah. might say I'm driven, but I'm not driven. I'm quite a casual guy.
0: Ah, yes, I'm not sure I believe any of that. The The communication bit is the bit I was trying to get to. And I'm glad you brought it up there because you're obviously known for the Everest speech mm-hmm. and, and it's followed you around. And I don't know if you love it or loathe it, but it it's meant a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. How important is storytelling in your being a teacher, being a coach, being a headmaster? How important is storytelling? I think it's very
2: important. One of the things I did when I was out with the Lions in 66, I was a teacher and I went out to learn. So when I came back to Gara Academy, I wasn't bragging about being there, but I used to talk about my experiences there and the things they did in New Zealand and so on. Same in South Africa. So many players then and now, they used to hide away in the room or whatever, or they would go fishing and that was all they did. I was determined when I went abroad to learn as much about the country and bring back that information to my classroom. Even although I wasn't a geography teacher, or an English teacher, and so what you're saying is is is, is important. I could uh, relate to things I'd done. I mean, when I was in South Africa, we went to diamond mines, we went to gold mines. You know, so you could talk about that when you came back to the, back to the classroom. Uh, I don't know about storytelling, but I mean, the the I could talk about things that I'd seen and done in these countries that, to the youngsters 12, 13 in front of you, are miles and miles away, 10,000 miles away. And so they're out of the reach of what they're trying to think about. Mm-hmm.
0: But speaking to those newly professional rugby players... Mm-hmm. How how do you grab them? How do you get your message across? And you come up with this metaphor of giving for your Everest. I mean, that's it's poetic, it's it's Robbie Burns, it's Walter Scott, it's it's not, it's Jim Telfer. Yeah.
2: Funnily enough, until recently, five years ago, I stopped coaching at Melrose, under 18s, you know, and people used to say Oh, well, you'll be easy on them and all that sort of
0: thing. (laughs) Can I I say that I witnessed some of that and you were not easy on any of them? (laughs) But
2: but one thing, Bruce, and I don't know, it's not my because I coached some border teams under 16 teams before that. The players loved it, you know, they loved it as far as I could see. They wanted discipline. They wanted to be, you know, Oh, they, they, they wanted to be told what to do and understand what, why they were doing it. and you, But they, they wanted, they came to train and not to bugger about. They, they came to work hard. And uh, so youngsters now are exactly the same as they were in that respect in rugby. I'm told they're completely different. Other ways, you know, they have uh, internet and all this and do, doodling about with their phones and so on. But when they came to Melrose and they played with the wasps, uh, they were all wanting to be as good as other players in the club or in Scotland, and and, and so I, I mean I'm not one of those people that say the youngsters today are, are this or that. I think there's some tremendous youngsters nowadays, and the they can be the kindness, the, the you know the the most thought uh, thinking of others and so on, doing charity work and so on, and so I have a great admiration for. Modern youth. And the the, the the I mean, I took the, the Colts at Mellors for eight or nine years, and I, they were tremendous. I absolutely loved doing it. And uh, they came, whether it was porn or whatever, and uh, none of them could drive, so their parents had to bring them. You know, they're under 17, a lot of them. Uh, and the parents uh, made sure the parents knew they had to be there, and they did.
0: They got them, yeah. <laughs> hey, the parents were as scared as the kids were. Jim, they make no no mistake. Now, I think I think Martin Johnson said that your passion motivates players. Now, you can hear the passion still in your voice and in the stories you tell. You've been a teacher. You've coached however many teams. There will be thousands and thousands of folk that have come under your nose for various reasons. Can. What, what was what was the point in all of that? I know you wanted to make them better rugby players. I know you wanted them to pass their chemistry exams. But the influence you've had on a huge number of people and the ripple effect of that, what was it that you wanted to give them?
2: I've never thought of it, thought of it in that context at all. You know, uh, see, I've never been ambitious. I've never been ambitious. You know how players say, well, I've always wanted to play for Scotland or England. I never thought I was good enough, and actually it it was the the fear of failure that drove me. So that's probably still what, uh, you know, drives me. I mean, I I used to practice my speeches to the Scottish team in the toilet on the Saturday morning before the game, and I had it all written out and so on, because I'm not a very confident person uh, per se, so I have to write everything down so i can't really answer your question it's just you must remember i taught in six different schools so i've influenced quite a lot of people for right or for wrong you know and so uh, all all i've tried to do is to always prepare very well for what i'm trying to do never when i was young i used to go to a lot to dinners and recently I used to get asked to be they used to want to pay you and i used to think my god i'm what if i don't speak very well and i get paid for it i prefer doing it as an amateur and still do i mean i, I don't go to many dinners now at all but course but i would i didn't i didn't want to feel as if it was a failure and that's been driving a driving force all through my career fear of failure not really ambitious but making, make, making sure that whatever you did, you had to prepare very well for it. I mean, I, I mean the players, I don't know if they laughed at me, but I I used to write my training schedules out in science books, simply because they were in my room and I could pinch them, you know? And I had, I had that, that, you know, about six, you know, a big pile of books right from the 67 68 right through every session i took at Melrose, even in the last uh, when i was taking the youngster they would tell you everything was prepared because i had to prepare a science class and i always prepared too much for my science class in case i ran out of material <laughs> what do you get and there's five minutes to go and you've nothing to say oh my god it was the same in rugby so i always prepared Everything's written down, sometimes shorthand and so on, as you can imagine. <coughs> Key words here and there. But I was still doing that when I was 75 years old. There's something wrong, you know. <laughs> Whereas a lot of coaches are blase and say, well, I don't need notes and so on. And it used to be when, when st- Ian is a coach, of course, a teacher as well. Richie Dixon was a teacher. And we used to get laughed at because of, some people were lawyers and, you know, there were all sorts of different things. And uh, they could talk off the cuff, you know. They didn't need preparation. But uh, sometimes when you saw them in the choir, they were taking little notes out of their pockets and looking at them as reminders and trigger words or whatever they call them. So, so uh, the preparation has always been my key, and I've, I've uh, I was still doing it five years ago.
0: Yeah, I I love it. Your influence on others is is immense. Now, I want to read this to you, Jim, because it it really made me laugh, and I wonder if you remember it. So David Hilton, he said that uh, when I told him that I'd spoken to you, he said, this has brought back a terrifying memory when he got woken up in camp one morning by the phone ringing. The first words I heard was Jim saying, Hilton, you're late for the team meeting. (laughs) Now, now, Stuart Campbell has brought up, he remembers that and he remembers when he came in late to the meeting and everybody laughed, but they, secretly they were just glad that it wasn't them. Did you like reading with a little bit of terror and a little bit of threat?
2: I, I think it was a technique. It was a technique. I think, Bruce, you'll know this, you become an actor when you're a teacher, you know, and your voice is important. You can shout or you could be quiet. Or you could suddenly pick somebody for doing something, and you uh, you know you point your finger, and you say Thompson, or, or stop that. And 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 the, the, uh, when I started teaching the Gallican, like every boy got called by his last name unless he came from Melrose. Just showing you how bigoted <laughs> we could be. Yeah. <laughs> so Jim Henderson was called Jim, and Ken Laurie, Kenny Laurie was called Laurie. <laughs> no this is stupid nowadays and uh, the girls all got called their first name anyway uh i mean i've been told by the the finley called uh uh white and and who would be the other one finally called john jeffrey john jeffrey that i used to pick them up you know uh, at, the tra- at the at the meetings and so they stopped being sitting together, so I couldn't pick them as a group. Uh, but it, it is true that I used to fire questions at, uh, at players to make sure they were listening. But I would warn them beforehand. You know, I, I think I did anyway. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll be, you know, a code or something, a line code, a scrum code for a move or something. I don't know what they're doing nowadays. They're probably too clever to have these things. But I... They used to shout it the forward, what would you do there? At that line, of, what, was, what did you decide to do there? And, and they, were, they were sitting there. Oh, my God. It made them mentally awake, out
0: of it. When you're in the, the Lions video and you're giving those speeches, you can see that there's an act because the hmm. I, I find that you probably, I think you'll agree, there's the shout. But actually being really quiet is more intimidating and more threatening. And when you're giving some of those speeches, it's the quietness to your voice, which means everybody has to calm. So here's a question for you. Who would play Jim Telfer in the movie?
2: Uh, Actually, silence is a great thing in a talk as well. Uh, I don't know. I was told once uh, that they were going to make a movie. Of me and the man that we're going to choose to do it was liam neeson
0: oh you know, liam Nisa, yeah uh, but
2: that's all i can tell you it never came to fruition and i'll be gone by the time it's done so, uh, i don't know who would do it i think i think maybe you know the old tiger you
0: know, yeah.
2: he would be good eh? he's probably the same size but he's got the same demeanor you know yeah
0: I like that. I like that. Now, although you you carry that bit of threat, you've already mentioned about being in your own house. Now you've you've known my mother for a long, long time. She claims since she was about sixteen. Mm. And she tells this story. This is this is my favorite Jim Telfer story. That she was round at yours and you were late back from a game once. And you, you slipped in quietly and your wife, Frances, you said to my mum, don't tell Francis." And my mum said, you've been to the hospital, haven't you? And you said, how do you know that? She said, well, I can see the stitches in the back of your head. <laughs> but she said she'd never seen you scared before until you came home late and you were going to get in trouble for Francis. So so behind that man, there is, there is a threat that keeps him going. Is that right?
2: yeah actually i'm quite a soft person you know my wife Frances, i'll tell you how soft in the kids soft in the grandchildren as most people are you know so uh it's it's just a a front a front you know i'm really a coward
0: I don't believe that for a second. The the man that has stood up to all of those batterings and and stood in front of the lions, I don't you're a coward, Jim. I've I've absolutely loved speaking to you. It's been a real pleasure, and I'm really grateful for you coming on. But what I'd like you to do just to just to finish, there's two things. One is, what's your predictions for this Lions tour coming up? Uh...
2: It's a it's a daft thing to do to predict. I think the Lions will win two one.
0: Okay, like it. I like that. I love I, I think, love the
2: optimism. I, I think Lions nowadays are so well equipped, even though there's some players injured and and uh, there may be the the fact that the Springboks haven't played for a long time and so on. I think the Lions should win.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that. I'll take that optimism. And then, Jim, can you finish the sentence for me? For Jim Telfer, happiness is
2: beating England at rugby.
0: <laughs> I should never have expected anything less. And you've done that a few times as a player and as a coach. No, no, no. you've never been asked before. No. No. Does Jim very often? That's the point. Well, when it does, it's worth it though, isn't it? Oh, yes, right. Yeah, and it tends to happen on your birthday.
2: Yeah, well, the games often enough, yeah, and, and the games that we've won have been at home, usually. <laughs> uh, I mean, I never played when I beat England away, I never played when I coached, never won when I, I coached them away. So it's it, the 17th of March right enough, I, um,
0: Yeah, happy, happy days. Yeah,
2: that, Actually, of course, England doesn't need to be last now. I mean, they always were last when I was a player. There's always France, Wales, Ireland, England. There's always that sequence.
0: So it could be anything for England now. Yeah. Happy days. Jim, thank you very much. All the very best and I hope you enjoy the summer. Okay.
2: Same to you, Bruce. Thanks very much for having me on. All the best with your podcast. Okay?
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. That was gold, the absolute best. That, ladies and gentlemen, for podcast is my Everest. Thank you very much for listening. You can catch it on Apple, ACAST, and Spotify. You can also watch on Facebook and YouTube. Please leave a review, leave some comments, and I'll pass them on to Jim Telfer, who is. Absolutely gold. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did. My name is Bruce Aitchison, and my happiness is egg shaped. All the very best, and I look forward to speaking to you all very soon. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And, and our, our happiness is egg shaped.
2: Happiness, happiness is egg shaped, and love's a circle with no end. about oh, this, oh, this, oh, this, oh, this last night, and he said, Happiness
1: is egg shaped. Hey, um, happiness, egg-shaped. happiness is egg shaped and love's a circle with no end want flexibility? take yoga want flexibility with your health insurance? check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental and vision coverage that may be right for you more at UH1.com